Our text this morning is John chapter 18, verses 1 through 27. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when, they, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, have, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But, G but Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, please bless our understanding of your word now. As we come to the crucifixion of your son, we read about Judas who goes out into the night and comes again in darkness. He moves in the night, and yet he's coming to arrest the light of the world. A few verses later, Pilate will ask Jesus, what is truth? He asks it as if there can be no answer, and yet he will ask this question who, of the one who is truth itself. The soldiers who crucified Jesus will mock him as the king of the Jews, while they are the ones who will unknowingly enthrone him on the cross. And so, Father, we see how easy it is for our sin to blind us, to cause us to miss what is right before us. So we ask that you would pour out your Spirit on us now, that the light of Christ would shine in our hearts and in this text as we turn to study it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, and amen. I know that with this extra hour of sleep in you, you've got all kinds of endurance, so we're going to drag this one out for a long time. 
I'm, I'm actually going to uh, steal a little bit from uh, Pastor Wilson in the way he uh, structures his sermons sometimes. Meaning I'm going to, um, the first bit, I want to just do a brief kind of pass over the whole thing, just kind of uh, outlining what's there. And then, uh, and then the, the second half will spend just kind of unpacking one particular point. So, so beginning with this first uh, section, verses 1 through 9, in the, in the beginning of this chapter, we, we have Judas has gone out to begin the, the betrayal. Um, and, and we know that Judas has uh, the unique ability of knowing where Jesus is likely to be at a particular time when he goes into uh, his, his private space with his disciples. Um, where, and they need a moment like that for the soldiers to be able to grab him. So that's why Judas is so useful, is he can, he can help them find Jesus at a moment when there's not a crowd around him. And it's why the Jews pay him to betray Jesus. So he knows the place that Jesus is like to be, likely to be at this particular moment. Uh, in verse 2, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. He has this inside uh, information, and he could lead, lead the, the soldiers um, to Jesus at the right moment. Now, the reason that the soldiers are going to... Um, try to capture him, and they want to try him and execute him. It goes all the way back to chapter 11. It's right after the, the resurrection of Lazarus. Okay, in chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And if you look at, I mean, chapter 11, starting verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So, so there's this fear that Jesus, in, in doing the work that he's doing, particularly when he's actually raising the dead, he's gathering this crowd around him, and the Jews have this very um, delicately arranged and negotiated peace with the Romans. The Romans occupy Israel. They occupy Jerusalem. They have a Roman garrison, a fortress that's built on the wall of the temple overlooking it so that they can control it all. And yet the Jews have a little bit of freedom in which to work and in which to actually continue to have their temple, continue to carry on their sacrifices, and have this kind of approximation of what they believe is, is, is the, the religion that they're supposed to be um, participating in. And they don't want that they don't want that threatened. They don't want the balance that they have worked out threatened by somebody doing these spectacular things. And it's funny because you've got the word of God right in front of you bringing people from death to life. And there's this concern like this is going to make things awkward and difficult for us. I think what we should do is let's kill him. Let's, let's sneak him away and let's kill him. Verse, starting verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider it that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together and one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So Caiaphas had had an actual prophecy that the, that the death of Jesus, that he would die and his death would unite all of Israel. Of course, he doesn't understand the irony that is going on there. And it is, it is kind of strange um, that you have somebody who is hostile to Christ, but is actually giving true prophecies about Christ. But we've seen this before. If you go back um, in the book of Numbers, we have um, the character Balaam, who is a hostile He's hostile to Israel, 
But God gives him multiple prophecies about the blessing, God's blessing on Israel and ultimately about the coming of the Messiah. I believe when we get to the Advent season, the four prophecies of Balaam will be the four texts that we work through um, in our sermon messages. So we'll be coming to that in a little while. But it's, this, is, this is not new that God would pour out his spirit on an enemy of God and they would speak true things, true prophecies. And that's what Caiaphas has. He, is, he has prophesied rightly that Jesus is going to unite all of Israel, but Caiaphas himself doesn't understand the real significance of that. So they believe that they, they need to sneak Jesus away and, and kill him, and that somehow in doing that, it will, it will bless, uh, be a blessing to Israel, and they feel like they need to do it so they don't have their peace with Rome threatened at all. Now, uh, and, and that's why th- that happens in chapter 11, and that's why if you uh, remember over the last few sermons, I keep pointing back to how at chapter 12, everything turns. The um, 1 through 11, we're, we are over three years of Jesus' life in the book of signs, and then in 12, all of a sudden, now we're in the last week, and everything is pointing towards Jesus' coming death. Well, it's that thing that happens there in chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus, the unsettling of the Jews, there's the sort of cementing of their determination that they need to, to execute Jesus. That's why it changes in the middle of the book. Now, in verse 4, back to chapter 18, it says that Jesus, knowing all things, goes forward. And, and this has been emphasized a couple of times already uh, in John, this, this sense that um, when uh, Judas betrayed him, he knew what was happening. When, when the, the, um, they're coming to arrest him, he knows exactly what he is doing. He is not surprised. His ministry has not been... Um, uh, interrupted by um, something that he didn't see coming. This was not a failure. It's not as if what he was trying to do uh, is not coming to fruition. This is exactly what he intended to have happen. And John keeps emphasizing that, Je- that even though his disciples are thrown by all of this, Jesus is willingly uh, going uh, forward. His arrest then was the success of his deliberate mission and not the failure. And the, the arrest is really interesting. In, in verse 7, Jesus says, whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and Jesus answers with, I am he. Now, uh, my translation, I've got New King James. I am he. And if you're looking in the New King James, you'll notice that the he is italicized. And, uh, and the way it works is oftentimes when you're translating something from Greek or from Hebrew into English, you have to supply extra words to kind of make it make sense. And frequently the translators, at least this is the way they do it in the New King James, words that are supplied in order to make sense of it are italicized. Uh, it's not emphasis the way um, other people might use italics. And so if you look at the Greek, Jesus' answer here, when they say, we're looking for Jesus of, of Nazareth, when you look at the Greek, his answer is literally, I am. It's the I am, uh, a me, ego a me, I am. Uh, this is, we know, God's divine name revealed to, to Moses at the beginning, the I am. They're asking who he is, where he is, and he says he's the I am. And it's, it's great, I think, that um, you know, he, he says this in verse 5, and he says this in verse 8. And then in verse 6, um, John repeats it for us, how, how it played out. So it means that we get the I am three times. Three times Jesus says that I'm the I am. I'm, I'm, I'm right here. And the, um, the significance of it is not lost on them. I mean, when he says it, they fall down. They, they actually fall down when he speaks the fact that he is the I am. 
it's clearly a, a significant moment where um, who Jesus is is being revealed. And remember John 1, 1, we, we start off with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And, and he is declaring that to them right now. He is the I am. He is the eternal essence. He's not some created being. He's not some glorified angel. He's not some secondary um, act of creation of God. He is God himself. He is the I am. The word was God. You can't really get more obvious than saying I am. If, if you remember back in um, chapter 8, uh, the the Jews actually um, pick up rocks and try to stone him because Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And he's done this a couple of times now. He is revealing that he is the one who is. And, and in um, chapter 17, he said that this was happening. In 17, both in verse 6 and in verse 26, that he came with the express job of declaring to the people the name of God. God's name is I am, and he said, and he is declaring it for them now that he is the I am. And the revelation of this name is so powerful that they fall over at the sound of it. Now, in verses 10 to 14, you, you get the arrest. Um, and when, when Jesus is arrested, they come forward to, to seize him, and Peter isn't about to let this happen. And so he strikes off uh, the ear of Malchus, the, the high priest's servant. But Jesus stops Peter, and, and he embraces the moment that, verse 11, shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Okay, He understands that this is, the, this is you know, he, he has been praying that the Father's will would be done, and he is giving himself to it, and he plans on fully drinking this cup. So they arrest him, they, they bind him, and they take him to Annas, the, um, the father-in-law of the high priest, Remember back in uh, chapter 1 how John the Baptist introduced Jesus. He, is, he says, when, when John the Baptist points to Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we are now um, leading up to Passover, and Jesus is becoming the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. So it makes sense that he is now bound, and he is going to be um, taken to the high priest to be uh, examined. Um, now, just to explain, there is a little bit of a peculiarity here because he goes to Annas first, even though Caiaphas is the high priest. The, the, according, to, um, according to the Torah, the high priest was a one-time for life in, um, um, office. When you became high priest, you were high priest until you died, and it didn't pass on to the next high priest until you died. Um, when Rome takes over and they are ruling Israel, they take certain liberties in, in the way they impose themselves on uh, Israel. And so, like I said, there's a, there's a garrison of, uh, there's a fortress, I think it's the fortress of Anthony or Antonia, um, that is built right alongside the temple so that the, the troops can look over and, and run, uh, run the Jews and observe the, the sacrifices and whatnot. And one of the things they do is they take liberty with um, somebody's a high priest, then they say, okay, you're high priest for one year, now you're stepping down, and they would install somebody else. So you could have multiple people who had served as high priests, they were all alive, while there's a new priest, a high priest installed. According to the Torah, that would never happen, but the way Rome is running things, this can happen. And so Annas had been the high priest, and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is appointed high priest in his stead. But Annas still has... Um, the clout of, of being the high priest. And so they go to seek him out first and to seek his word first before 
uh, Jesus has taken on to Caiaphas. I believe um, in the next few years, Caiaphas has five sons that will all be high priests. I think many of them while he is still um, alive. So anyhow, that gets us through Jesus's arrest. And then we move on to verses 11 and 18. Peter and John um, have followed. And I, I wonder... Um, at this point, what's Peter's motivation in following along? I do think that there's a sense in which um, Peter, the moment he pulled the sword, I think that he's thinking that Jesus is going to make some great military stand. And he's surprised that Jesus willingly goes with the arrest. But he's he's following because I think he's still waiting for that moment when Jesus will like Samson or something, you know, burst his 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 uh, his bonds and and come out swinging, and he wants to be there for it. And so he's he's following along to try to be with Jesus, but this is playing out entirely differently than what he had expected. Now it appears that it's we've um, we have this disciple who's not named, and that tends to be John in the Gospel of John. So we assume this is John that is with Peter, and somehow John has an inside connection. He knows the family of the high priest, and so he can get the two of them in. And they get into this house. Interestingly, um, I believe in the last few years, they actually, archaeologists believe they've discovered um, Caiaphas's house, uh, the high priest's house, and have been able to kind of uncover it all, and, and you can, this this moment as it's playing out here, you can kind of stand and see how it actually would have um, played out on the, on that evening. Anyhow, so um, the um, they have followed along. A servant girl um, challenges Peter, asking if he's one of his disciples, and he denies it. And then uh, we get in 19 through 24, you get um, Annas interrogating Jesus. And Jesus' argument is, is pretty simple. Um, I, what I am, what I teach, I have always done openly in public. There's no need to sneak me off and do this in private. You can ask anybody. Um, you're basically, you're being a coward to not actually challenge me openly. You have to do this under the cover of darkness. And the high priest does not care for that. Um, then in verse 25 and 27, we get the final uh, two denials. We're back at the fire, and Peter's asked two more times if he is one of Jesus' disciples. And two more times, he denies it. There's a mix of, of him being from Nazareth, and you can tell by the accent. And so that prompts some of the questions. And then you have also people who have just seen him with Jesus asking him. And he denies it two more times. And after his third denial, uh, the, the rooster crows. And the rooster crow is significant because that ends the evening. It means it's morning, and now we're going to um, transition into a new kind of trial. But it's also significant because it fulfills Jesus' prophecy from John chapter 13 that, G- that Peter would betray him, or excuse me, deny him three times before uh, the, the cock was to crow. Now, um, I want to um, dive in a little bit on this question of Peter's denial. Um, it's, d- it's difficult to make sense of Peter at this point, I think. Uh, at first, you might think, well, it turns out that Peter was all talk, and he just chickened out, right? He, he, was, he was all kinds of brave, and then all of a sudden, this little servant girl asked him a question, and all of a sudden, he's a little coward, and he, and he, and he runs, and he um, denies Jesus, and, he, and he, he chickens out surprisingly early, if that's the case. But if you think about it for very long, I just don't think that that makes sense. Um, I don't think characterizing uh, Peter that way makes sense, because just a few verses earlier, he pulled a sword and began slashing in the face of a whole detachment of troops. 
right? When, Ju- when Judas came, he came with a whole assembly of soldiers that were given to him. Uh, so he's got armed warriors standing there, and, and Peter is standing there, and, and he alone pulls a sword and goes after them. So it's weird to, to try to say, oh, he's, he's this little kind of snivelly coward, this, that he's somehow the chicken. He was at the very front of the fight when he thought that the fight was going down. Right? He, he's the very front of it. He's the one who's trying to get it started. Um, he only stopped because Jesus stopped him. That, that's the only re- reason why he pulls back. So I don't think it makes sense to say that he chickened out when uh, challenged by a servant girl. I think it's not so much that Peter has lost his courage. It's that he never really understood what it was that he was getting into. He had not understood what was happening uh, this evening. One of the things that you see with Peter is him... Um, having a hard time processing what it is that Jesus is up to. If you look at um, John 13, um, verses, start verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. All right, he, um, Jesus comes and he's going to, to wash his feet and Peter wants to correct Jesus. This is not right. And, and Jesus says, you don't understand. And if you want to be with me, you have to submit yourself to this. You have to allow me to perform this function for you. Um, again, a little bit later uh, in chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, Where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you've denied me three times. Um, Peter has a hard time understanding what Jesus is up to. Jesus says to him, this is again back a little bit earlier in verse 10, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean and you are clean uh, but not all of you. You, you need what um, Jesus is trying to give to him. Um, the, it, and in particular, there was a path of self-humiliation that Jesus was determined to walk. Right? There's, a, there's a path of self-humiliation that Jesus has, he knows this is his cup to drink, and he has set his face uh, towards uh, on, on that path. And it's interesting, I think, that, that we're told that when Jesus left Jerusalem here in, in John 18, when he leaves it and he goes down to the Garden of Gethsemane, it says he crosses over the brook Kidron. That's how this chapter is introduced in verse 1. Um, Brook Kidron is not mentioned very much, but this one time Jesus is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, it says he crosses over the Brook Kidron. Uh, this is the exact same way that David's departure is described when he fled from Absalom in 2 Samuel 15, 23. He goes over the Brook Kidron on his way when he's kind of abandoning Jerusalem. Jesus is allowing himself to be humiliated. He's walking a path of humiliation, and Peter does not want to allow this. You're not going to wash my feet. You're not going to get on your knees. You're not, going to, you're not going to struggle and suffer. You're not going to carry shame. You're the king, and I'm going to go die with you, and we're going to go out in this sort of ball of flame. Peter's denial comes from his inability to see or to allow the self-humiliation of Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God at this point going forward to the slaughter, but Peter wanted a warrior that he could, that he could die beside in battle. 
Peter's denial is the climax of his resistance to Jesus' self-humiliation. Just like Peter tried to stop Jesus from washing his feet, Peter wanted to stop Jesus from going through the humiliation of the cross. However, one thing I think that is really interesting um, is that we always say that, um, that in this section, Peter denied Jesus. Um, but, but what's interesting is actually if you read this, this passage really closely, that's not exactly what Peter does. He doesn't deny Jesus. Peter did not G- deny Jesus or deny who Jesus is. Peter denied who Peter is. Okay, look, look at verse 17. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. No, that's not me. I am not. Now, I get that in, um, by effect that is a denial of Jesus, but specifically, he doesn't deny who Jesus is. He doesn't say Jesus is not God. He does not say uh, Jesus is not the Messiah. He doesn't say anything like that. He actually is speaking about himself, and he denies himself. He says, I am not. I am not one of his disciples. That's not me. I'm not there. Look at verse uh, 25. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. I am not. And then again in verse 27, that denial is repeated one more time. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again and immediately a rooster rooster crowed. So Peter's denial is a denial of himself. He does not deny that Jesus is the Christ. He does not deny that Jesus is God. Peter denies that Peter is a disciple. His exact words are, I am not. And now what's really striking, if you think about that, is that, um, remember, we just saw that Jesus announces three times that he is the I am. You get three I ams from, from Jesus. He knows who he is, and he declares it, and he declares it so forcefully that everybody falls before him. He is the I am. But then immediately following that, we have three times Peter announcing that he is the I am not. I am not. Uh-uh. I'm, I'm, not I'm not with him. I, I'm not there. Um, and, it, and it's interesting, like I, I mentioned, the, the Greek for Jesus um, is ego emi, and uh, Peter's is ouk emi, or yeah, ouk emi. I'm not. So you've got Jesus saying, I am, and you have Peter just straight up saying, I am not. So you see, Jesus is the one who is. He's the great I am. He's eternal and unchangeable. And Peter did not deny this. Um, He didn't deny anything about Jesus. But one of the things we know is that correct knowledge of God in and of itself is not sufficient for salvation. It's not having knowledge about God, having factual um, assertions about who God is. You believe that there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble, James 2.19. Okay? It's not just this factual assertion about God. The question is not, does God exist? The question is, who are you in relation to God? Who are you in relation to him? So when Peter says, I am not, what was it that Peter was not? What was it he was trying to disassociate himself uh, from? Peter was not ready to be a disciple to the Jesus that was being revealed before him. A Jesus that would be humiliated, that would carry the grief and shame and scorn of the world. 
He was ready to be a disciple of the conquering Messiah. That one he was with. Okay, if you're the conquering Messiah, I am with you. But he wasn't ready to be a disciple to the Messiah that got on his knees and washed our feet, or that got on the cross and washed our sins. Peter had his own conception of what Jesus should be like. But when Jesus clearly diverged from Peter's plan for Jesus, that, you know, you've got the, what is the, the four spiritual laws from Campus Crusade, what God loves you has a wonderful plan for your life. I think Peter loved Jesus and had a wonderful plan for his life. For, you know, he had Peter's idea of how Jesus should achieve what he was supposed to do. But when Jesus clearly diver, diverged from Peter's plan for Jesus, Peter said, I am not. I'm, I'm not with that. I'm not going there. But we need to understand that Jesus is who he is, not who we would like him to be. Um, he is our Lord, not our dress-up doll, right? He, he is our Lord. He is our master. He's not the one that we get to craft in outfits that we have selected for him. This is why a, a phrase that you'll hear often in Moscow that I think is just really important to get deep down in your bones is no problem passages, right? No problem passages. Because, um, so, so whatever the Bible says, we want to say that whatever the Bible says, we must believe the whole thing. We've got to take the whole book and all of it we have to give ourselves to. And there are lots of places, there are some places where you're like, that's just a sweet and wonderful verse, and it makes me feel sparkly. So I, I love that. I'll put this on my, you know, poster on, on my wall. But then you'll hit texts that make you go, oh, ouch, that's hard. That's rough. That's, uh, I kind of think I am not, right? When you, when you hit those passages. But you see, this whole thing, right? He is our Lord, not just pieces of him. This whole book is the revelation of who he is. And we need to commit to having no problem passages. Whatever the Bible says, that's what we must believe. There's many times where you may read a passage and in your heart, you may say, I am not. But when you hear this in your heart, the next prayer needs to be, Lord, help my unbelief, right? Deal, deal with that in me, not, not, you know, how will I take this out of the text, but how do you deal with that in me? Because the sinful heart wants to pick and choose. And if you give someone a Bible, um, if you give someone a Bible, a pair of scissors, and some glue, you can make Jesus appealing to just about anyone, right? You can, you can snip it up and, and rearrange it so that it's appealing to just about anyone, but you're left with a paper mache Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible. And we want to make sure that we actually are, are allowing ourselves to, to experience the Jesus of the Bible. Now, the definition of salvation um, is union with Christ. Right? That's at the very center of what we believe it means to be saved. It's union with Christ. It's identifying yourself with Christ as he is, as he really is, as he is revealed to us in Scripture. I think one of the uh, most significant texts for understanding what your salvation is has got to be Galatians 2.20. This is Paul speaking, and he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, that is union with Christ. I died with him, and the life that I now live is him in me. It's his life is mine, and that is what my life is now. Let me give you a little imaginary scenario. Uh, imagine if we had the, the Moscow Gestapo uh, you know, suddenly come in in the middle of the service. And there's this you know, surprising, out of nowhere, bunch of guys come in uh, in boots and clubs and whatnot in the middle of the service, and we are all lined up against the wall. Okay, You're lined up against the wall, and the question is, that is put to you is this. 
deny Christ or we execute you right now. Okay, everybody is lined up and you, and you have that choice in front of you. Um, the thing is, I have no doubt that it would be a moment of great faithfulness for this congregation. I have no doubt that it, that it would be um, incredible faith would be put on display. But it, it turns out that while being asked to die for Christ seems enormous, being asked to live for Christ is actually much bigger. Okay, so, so if, if the question is, would you die right now for Christ, which is what Peter was absolutely, I'm ready, you know, I, I'm, I'm in, let's do it, let's charge, and he pulls his sword, and, and he runs. The, 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 um, the challenge of dying with Christ is one thing, but what's a lot more difficult is being ready to live with Christ. Paul's description of the gospel is, your life is Christ, all of it is his, all of it is shaped to, um, to what is revealed here in Scripture. And it turns out that's a much uh, bigger deal. Paul doesn't say, the death that I now die, I die for Christ. He says that the life that I now live, I live for Christ. And I think a lot of us are kind of reeling at the way um, our nation and even our town has become extremely hostile uh, to faithful living. Right? We're really surprised about all these things that are being taken away and all these impositions, and you can kind of see looming really kind of horrific possibilities and things that we, we used to think were only possible in North Korea, uh, China, and, and you know, um, 1940s Germany. We're starting to see kind of looming on the horizon, and it's quite terrifying in a lot of ways. Um, and there's this sense that this scenario I just described of, of the Moscow Gestapo showing up in the middle of the service might not be that unrealistic, right? You, you have this sense of like these kinds of things could actually happen in our lifetime. But I want to emphasize that the real challenge is already before us, right? That's actually a small thing compared to the, the challenge that's been put before you right now. The real challenge is already before us, has always been before us. We are not waiting for the hard stuff to start. We're in the middle of it right now. It is simply this, to every day look at Christ, to look at all of Christ, all of Christ for all of your life, okay? All of him for everything in, in your life, not just the parts that you prefer, but all of Christ, no problem verses. To look at that and then to be, able to, be, to, to be able to say with Jesus, I am. Not I am not, but I am. You are not the eternal I am. You're not that. But you are his saint, right? You are his. And we need to be able to say, I am with Christ. Now, the glory of the story is that we all know that Peter is forgiven and is going to be restored. Sorry if I've spoiled this for you. But, but we, we know that this, um, this denial that Peter um, has, has stumbled into is, is one of the sins that Jesus was going to the cross for right then. That all the places where we have been faithless, he has been faithful and he has not denied us, right? We've denied him, but he has, de um, he has not denied us because that is all atoned for um, on the cross. Part of the shame that Jesus carried on the cross then is the shame of Peter's denial. There is forgiveness for that faith, faithlessness for those that turn and cling to him and say, I am. I am with you. I am uh, all of Christ for all of life uh, in, for all of Moscow is our prayer. Let's pray. 
our Heavenly Father, we are so privileged to be called Christians. Uh, We are so blessed to be able to take Jesus' name upon ourselves. But Father, we are commanded uh, to not take your name in vain. And so we would ask that you would bless us, not with just with the name of Christ on us, but with the life of Christ in us. May our lives become more and more an overflow of his life. And where we are reluctant, where we have sins that we are slow to confess, slow to repent of, slow to walk away from, would you pour out your spirit on us? Forgive us and renew us like you did for your servant Peter. Father, we know that your ideal for us is far more glorious than our ideal for ourselves. May may we be what you would have us be. And so we pray as your son taught us to pray, saying, In my exhortation earlier, I encouraged you all to remember that the church is indeed one. Despite our many differences, we are united by common faith in Christ. We are all part of one body, which is Christ as its head. And yet, while our oneness is a fundamental attribute of the church that can never be denied, it is still something that we must continually strive for and maintain at the same time. To do this, we must avoid unnecessary divisions and conflicts, which strike at and strain our fellowship and unity. And it is here, at this table, where we find a means of grace towards that end. It is here in this sacrament called communion, where we all partake together as one. For this table is the Lord's, and this table is one. It stretches across the earth and across time, and at it sits the Lord and his bride. As we partake of this bread and wine week after week, the Father delights in continuing to answer Christ's prayer, that all who believe in him would be made one in his perfect love. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ in the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the charge is this, that life is your life. That life is your life. So all of Christ for all of your life, for all of Moscow. Receive the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.